What's up, everyone? This is episode 230 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Twitter or X or whatever that app is called now, I am not sure what's going on. Anyway, as you guys know, this week is the National... I'm out of town, so in order to have a new episode ready, I had to record and edit it about a week ahead of time, which is no problem. I got it done, felt good about it, I had everything ready to go, and then of course, late Sunday night, a big piece of hobby news dropped that I felt was worth addressing. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it needs to be talked about a little for continuity's sake, because this is a topic I've talked about in the past before. So, Darren Ravel tweeted out the following. He said, Breaking, PWCC employees say that new owner Fanatics has informed company via a memo that PWCC founder and CEO Brett Hudgens has, quote, exited. And let me cut in and remind you, if that name sounds familiar to you, it came up quite a bit in 2019. And then more recently on this show, it came up on episode 218, where I talked about Brent's stance on card alteration versus card restoration, which was very different than the stance people in the hobby had at the time. Uh, Although, sadly, it seems like a lot more people are accepting of it now. Uh, I am still against that stance, mind you. But anyway, Darren's tweet continued with a couple lines from the PWCC memo he referenced, which said, As a reminder, we are focused on doing business the right way. We are committed to operating with the highest level of integrity and a strong ethical framework which I thought was an interesting way to frame things, seeing as, you know, it it strongly suggests that Brent does not operate or has not operated with a high level of integrity and a strong ethical framework. Once again, those are not my direct words, but that's what this PWCC memo says and then implies. And I'd love to see the rest of it, which I'm sure will probably leak out over time, but as as of this recording, it's just not there. Now, Ravel also added that he asked Fanatics about the decision, and they said, quote, we mutually agreed to part ways. And Darren's commentary claims that this is Fanatics' attempt to clean up the hobby. I mean, that sounds good and all, given everything that's gone down, and their framing of this whole thing that there were some questionable moves made while he was in power, right? But I think recent history tells us that might not be the full story. We saw something similar when PSA was acquired and Joe Orlando was eventually moved out, which is a move that, you know, we predicted and we saw it coming and it eventually came to be. Because they want their own people in there, as most companies would, and this is just one more step in Fanatic's aggressive takeover. And everyone says that Michael Rubin is great at finding the right person for the job. I'm not sure if that's the case on the card side of things. And I'm as I've said before, I don't like the way things are going down. So while it was a move that interested me quite a bit, I'm not sure what we eventually end up with. You know, I'm not sure it's going to be any better. And that's kind of my take on the transition to Fanatics in general. And normally I would end a segment like this by saying, well, I guess only time will tell, right? Because that's just kind of a good way to transition out. But I want to be clear. While all of this change is taking place, we don't just have to sit here and watch while it all goes down. Now, obviously, we don't have control over a move like who's in charge of PWCC and stuff like that, but I think we can have some say. And it won't be easy, and it requires a lot of people buying in, but I think we can have some say. And I read a tweet this weekend about New Wax 
that was along those same lines. So I'm going to close this little segment out by reading that to you. It comes from a collector on Twitter that goes by the handle Those Back Pages. And he wrote, People want current wax to be cheaper? It starts with you. You must vote with your wallet. You must not buy into whatever the release of the week is. Because the releases, they are not going to stop being released. It starts with you not buying. I thought that was certainly something to think about. Whether they're selling us on the experience or selling us on the product itself, at the end of the day, we are still the end consumer. And I think there's some power that comes along with that if harnessed appropriately. Just something to keep in mind. Okay, now here is the episode I had planned. You know, this great hobby of ours gets some people to do some real strange things sometimes. And as you'll find out here shortly, that's a pretty consistent theme throughout the course of this week's show. To start off, a couple weeks ago, I did something I've never done before, all to try and track down a Ron Artest card I've been looking for for years. I wrote a letter, the old-fashioned snail mail kind, and while I've written letters to athletes before asking for autographs, I've never written to someone asking about the location of an unsigned card. I figure some of you might get a kick out of the story, so here goes. A couple weeks ago, someone posted a thread on the hobby boards asking player collectors why they chose to collect their particular player. So I pieced together my little write-up about Ron Artest, talked about how I loved the 2000s Pacers, how Reggie was too expensive back then, and, and really, to an extent, still is, how I continued to collect his stuff even after the brawl. I went through all of that, and then I talked about how I build up the best possible collection that my teenage self could piece together, which wasn't much, mind you, but I did have a UD Ultimate 101 that was the centerpiece of my collection. I think I bought it for like 50 bucks, and that was a big deal for me at the time. I, I probably had to talk my mom into letting me make the purchase, and there's a good chance she probably helped fund some of that as well. Anyway, that card was the pride and joy of my collection for a while, but then, you know, life goes on, Ron asked to be traded, I went off to college, and then after I graduated college, I, I found my collection again and decided it was time to sell some stuff including that 101, and then ironically enough, in selling that collection, or, or part of that collection, I kind of got hooked on basketball cards again, but not Ron Artest, not at that time. And I've thought about that card a lot since then, especially since I started adding to the Ron collection over the last 10 or so years. So I ended my write-up on the hobby boards asking people to keep an eye out for this card because it would mean a lot to me to own it again should the opportunity ever materialize. Well, I posted this thread on Twitter as well, and someone responded with something to the effect of, hey, I assume you've already reached out to the person you sold it to, which kind of stopped me in my tracks because it was such an obvious course of action, and I don't think it had ever crossed my mind. Like, is, is that something that people do? So I went back in my email and I found the invoice. Turns out I sold this in, in 2010 and not 2006, as I had originally thought, for a whopping $65 shipped, but... I felt pretty hopeful because this old invoice had an email, an eBay username, and a physical address for the buyer. So I started with the email, seeing as, you know, that those kind of travel with people and that would be the easiest and also the least invasive form of contact, in my opinion. I drafted up this big message and it ended up coming back as undeliverable. And that was when I told myself, you know, I should have known this wasn't going to be that easy. My next course of action was to search the eBay username, which I thought would also be pretty simple. 
but no luck there either. It, it does not exist anymore. Although I did discover that someone with the same name and username is in the PSA Hall of Fame, which I didn't even know was a thing, but after reading through some of the website, it, it seems like a pretty big deal. That left me with just the name of the buyer and the address of his residence from 2010. So I decided to Google the address to see if this person's name was still attached to the residence, which, you know, that stuff is not always correct, but the results had his name on it. So as far as I know, he still owns this residence. At that point, I, I drafted up a letter, and I also printed out a copy of the original invoice and a picture of the card. Maybe that would trigger a memory of some sort. Put it in an envelope, and I mailed it off. And some of you might have seen the poll on Twitter where I ask, is it weird for me to write this person a letter and send it via snail mail? Well, 131 people voted. 36% said, yeah, that's weird. Leave them alone. And the other 64% said, no, that's not weird. You should send it. Which I, I was kind of surprised by the results. I thought it would be the majority, yes. But, you know, regardless, those of you that know me well know that 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 poll was just for my entertainment. That letter was getting sent either way. I don't care if people think I'm weird. I've done plenty of weird stuff to track down cards. and But I also have plenty of PC cards to show for those efforts. So, you know, I, I, I've learned from those experiences. Now, that letter should have made it to that house well over a week ago. And I wish I could sit here and tell you the owner of the card dialed my number that I put in the letter. We worked out a deal. And everyone lived happily ever after. And then I could show the card off on Instagram and there would be good, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings all around. None of that's true. I, I've not heard anything back yet. And on top of that, as a result of this letter, I'm now answering every phone call that comes up on my phone as potential spam. Because, you know, hey, it could be that person. But up to this point, the potential has been realized. Every single call has been spam. And... It's become a continual reminder every time I get that call from, you know, whatever, auto warranty or whoever, of one of the harder lessons we have to deal with in this hobby. Not everything can be tracked down. Or even if it can, you know, maybe I do get a hold of this guy. That doesn't guarantee that he's going to sell me the card or, or doesn't guarantee things are going to go my way. You can't have everything. But at the same time, that struggle helps us put everything in a perspective and it allows us to appreciate when things do work out. And when things do go right, and I'll have an example of that in today's main segment where I chat with a former statistician of Happy Meals. Yes, you heard that right. I know that's not what you expected to hear on here, but I get all of the answers to questions I've had about a canceled Ron Artest Happy Meal toy from 2005, which thanks to this individual I now own. You won't believe the story behind that one, so you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Uh, but first, I want to talk about a couple pieces of mail. The first one you might have seen on my YouTube channel this past weekend, it was a custom Showley blaster from the show's official Northeastern correspondent. And Steve curated a whole box of, you know, probably at least 50 cards, maybe even more than that for my collection. Uh, and, and it was good stuff. There was Colt stuff, Fever stuff, Pacer stuff, of course, including a, a Danny Granger Playmakers hit. Uh, like a case hit, right, that I, I probably no-sold in that video. It dawned on me after I was recording, wait a second, that was a case hit. So I you know, do want to reiterate, uh, I'm definitely very thankful for that. And and even you know, bigger than that or beyond that, I, I know I've said this before, but find you a friend like Boston Steve. And back on episode 200, I think I mentioned the fact that I haven't missed an episode of this show since the whole thing started in March of 2019. 
yeah, I'd love to take all the credit for that, but really it's largely in part to great people like Steve and Carter and Chad, who you heard from a couple weeks ago. There have been weeks where I've been sick and I can't talk or weeks that were pretty hectic at work and I fell behind and I reached out to these guys and they all stepped in to help. So anyway, this showly blaster, long story short, was a good reminder of that. And even though I've already thanked Steve privately, I wanted to make sure that these things were said publicly as well. I think there's some value to that. I think people need to hear when people are doing good things. So thanks once again, Steve. Uh, Which then leads us into package number two, which was also a generous gift from a top super collector named Curtis, who goes by the username 2NR. Met him in Dallas last summer. He's a very nice guy. And right before last week's episode came out, I posted a picture of my 1971 slash 2000 Topps Heritage joint set project. And he messaged me asking which 2000 cards I needed. And I have a bad habit of trying to complete sets by memory, which in my defense works well with the patch sets that I'm working on, which, you know, it's not very many of them, just two or three. But it's not as effective when someone's offering to help you with a 233 card base set. You're not going to get very far if you just shrug and say, well, you know what, I don't actually know which ones I still need. So I sat down and I entered everything in on Trading Card Database I sent him the link and he was very generous in sending me probably 12 or 15 cards that I needed for the set, which included probably seven or eight stars. So thanks again, Curtis. I know he's out there working on some of those Topps Copper sets and a few other projects. I don't know if he wants them all out in the open, but hopefully I can help him locate some of those in the future as well. Okay, the final piece of mail I want to talk about is a purchase, and this is a very unique card. The moment I saw it, I said, I have to have this. And I have to give credit to Ben, the card guy on Instagram, for posting a picture of the eBay listing in his stories. Otherwise, I wouldn't have seen it. But the card is a 1961 Bill Russell. It's the regular version, not the inaction version. And it's in an SGC1 slab. And I know some of you might be thinking, you know, you just labeled this as a very unique card. That doesn't sound very unique. Well, this is the nicest looking SGC1 copy that I've seen by far. The color's good. The centering's about normal. There are a few creases, but nothing that would drop the card to the lowest grade possible. So why is it a 1? Well, I'm assuming this was many years ago, but uh, whoever owned it many years ago took a black marker and filled in Russell's mustache and goatee. And if you haven't seen Russell's 61 card, he looks really young in this shot and his facial hair isn't as filled in as he would regularly wear it later on. Well, until now, problem solved. And look, I know this style of altered card isn't for everyone, but I love this kind of stuff. I've got the Julius Irving rookie I've talked about, where someone scratched out the Squires team name and put Nets. Uh, I've raved with Will, also prolific cards, about a bearded Walt Frazier rookie I think we both wish we would have bought that ended up getting decertified by PSA because they didn't catch it. And to me, this type of stuff adds so much character to a card that otherwise, you know, really doesn't have any parallels out there. About the only things to chase it when it comes to vintage is all the different grades or autograph copies, but that's about it. And generally, these altered versions can be found at a fraction of the cost of the more standard variations. So that's right down my alley. It checks a ton of boxes for me. Uh, happy to get this one in, and I'll try to get that one posted before the National But if it's not on social media by the time this airs, you might be on the watch for that. It's coming soon. 
All right, before I move into today's conversation, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com. And ComC is excited to announce their latest grading partnership with PSA. With over 30 million raw cards available through the marketplace, ComC is making it even easier for you to buy, sell, and grade your favorite sports, Marvel, and TCG cards. To learn more about the direct grading program, head on over to ComC.com and check it out for yourself. Additionally, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my affiliate links, either for Amazon or eBay. And using these links costs you absolutely nothing, just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time, but it helps support the show. To access these links, simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you intend to shop on, shop as planned, just click my link first, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. This is Josh, a.k.a. Mitten State Collector on Instagram. You are listening to the Wax Museum Podcast, the best podcast by someone with a secret pistons PC. Okay, so joining me today is someone that is not an active collector at the moment and hasn't been for some time now. So that's a little change of pace from the norm. But he has an incredible story about a sports collectible that he's here to share. And I think you guys will enjoy it. The two of us met when I was hunting down a Happy Meal toy, of all things. More on that later. Trey, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I mentioned in the intro that you are not an active collector, but after we got to chatting some, you revealed that you collected, I think pretty seriously, into your teenage years at least, uh, which would have been up until about 2004, if I remember right. So I would love to hear more about that. This is something I normally do with collectors anyway. I like hearing about their, you know, their background. So let's get some context here. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and then take us through your collecting history. Sure. Um, so I work uh, in analytics and that's my job. And that's how we met was, we'll get to that later, I'm sure. But uh, I've worked in analytics. When I was a kid, I lived, I was a kindergartner, lived next door to a, a third grader who was just the coolest guy in the world. Like he played baseball. He knew about baseball. He was good at baseball. And he went to a local hobby store and brought back some baseball cards once. And that was in 1985. And I just looked at him. I love numbers. I was flipping over the back and I was just like, looking at all. And I decided this is what I have to have. And like pretty much from that moment on every Christmas present was baseball cards. Everything I want to talk about was baseball cards. Uh, my mom jokes about how we would drive to see family trips or whatever. And I would just sit in the back of the car and I would read the stat like Mac, Mike Schmidt home runs in 1988. And I would read it off to everyone in the car and they hated it, but they had nothing else to do. So that was just kind of what, um, right. what they happened. were stuck. Yeah. And my mom is kind of like, yeah, I can tell you so much about 1980s baseball players just because of those car rides. But, you know, I didn't have much money. And then as I got to be, um, there's a country club near my house where I could caddy. So somewhere around the age of 12, I started to caddy and I'd get those $10 per loops. And I would literally go, I lived in a suburb of Chicago then. It was like an idealistic suburb, but you could, a 10 year old could take his bike and it was the 80s. So they roam free and just hop on the bike without really telling anyone, run to the baseball card store, or buy something. So, I mean, I would go, wake up at 6 a.m., go caddy, um, 18, 27 holes at the country club, get 20, uh, 15, 20 bucks, and I would ride to the baseball card store, spend all of it, and then go home and just sit there with, like, my 1980-whatever tops wax packs and open them up. It was so much fun. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, I got more money, so then I started working when I was 15, 16, and 100% of that money was going to 
baseball cards. And that was all the way up until I went to college. And I was from Chicago, went to school at NC State in Raleigh, North Carolina. And things kind of slowed down at that point because I didn't have a car and I didn't know the area. So it was really hard for me to get to a hobby store. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, you know, I'd get a ride to Walmart or whatever and buy some retail packs at the big box stores. And then I went to grad school and I stayed like that all the way from when I showed up NC State 1995 until the mid-aughts is when I kind of really slowed down. At that point, I had a mortgage and stuff, so I, I had to, to knock it off. But I mean, overall, I got over 100,000 cards in my attic. I've been toting them with me everywhere <laughs> uh, as I go. And I will say, I know you're, you're basketball-oriented. It was somewhere around my late high school years, junior, senior year, where baseball, this is in the, the early 90s, baseball cards are just so saturated. They're all over the place, mm-hmm. and I realized it. And I wanted something to collect that I could obtain from a, a dollar perspective, and it wasn't that popular. So at that point, I actually started looking at um, basketball cards. And you know, off in the corner of my baseball card store, they had all these 1970s tops basketball cards. And I started to make it my mission to, to make those complete sets. And I didn't make it through them, but that was also kind of where I ended up was more in the basketball football areas. Okay. Um, just because I, I started to realize they weren't as popular uh, as baseball at the time. And I could get the special cards like, you know, a Will Chamberlain rookie card or something like that in those sports. So I did kind of start to move towards other sports uh, in my late high school years. But then after I went to college, I went back just to strictly baseball. And I was just trying to get every base top set from then on out. Um, but I like to get them from the packs. Like I didn't want to buy the complete set or find commons. I mean, if I just needed one card, I was just buying pack you know, one pack, open it up, see if it's there, buy a second and just keep going until I got that one card I need. Right. Yeah. It's definitely more about the hunt. Now uh, you're an analytics guy. So, you know, you started before stuff was really serial numbered and that stuff kind of crept in, but it, you know, I don't know if you had the funds for it at that time, which is always the challenge. And I feel your pain because there was a lot of stuff that was getting popular when I was collecting around that age and it's like, I, I just, I can't enter into that. You know, it's just not yep. in the realm for me. So maybe if the years had been, or the time frame had been a little bit different, uh, you probably would have gravitated towards a lot of that stuff, seeing as you were such a numbers guy. So you would say, you said in college or around grad school, you know, you were kind of picking up things here and there, but when would you say it kind of all stopped? Yeah. Um, probably 2004 is the last one. So like I said, I try to get every tops um, base set and I have them in my basement right now. Uh, and 2004 is the last one I have, but, um, you know, I think my last great score was, uh, in 2001, I think I was buying complete sets actually for mm-hmm. 03 and 04, 02, 02, 03, 04, but no one is the last time I was really trying to do it from packs. And, uh, one of the last packs I bought had a tops gold, which was the, there's 2001 of them, you know, it's a regular tops card with the gold, gloss on the front and, and a foil number on the back. And there's an Ichiro rookie card gold. Okay. I had no idea who Ichiro was at that time. So I just kind of put it in the monster box and left it. And then somewhere around 2005, I was just kind of like, I got to organize my collection because I don't want to like, you know, I, I took a lot of care to organize it well so I could find any card at any point as my adult years. And when I was doing that, I, I knew who Ichiro was by then. And I was like, holy cow, I got Ichiro gold rookie card and that went straight into like a top loader and it's stayed there since i need to get it uh, rated or something but i just haven't gotten around to that yet yeah it's and there is a um I, I know you have some background in it but man things have changed so much in that time frame especially in these last three years it was just like an accelerant on this whole hobby and this whole industry so uh i i am kind of excited you know i'd like to pull you back in a little bit. We'll, maybe we'll talk about that a little later here. But um, as you were collecting, you were familiar with things like Beckett Magazine. And as you saw in those magazines, there are player collectors out there that will go to great lengths to find the stuff that they're looking for 
including myself, when it comes to run our test pacer stuff. And um, I want to give the listeners a little backstory here, and I'm going to have you chime in then later on with the fun stuff for how we were connected. So back in 2005, McDonald's had Happy Meals with these mini NBA jerseys, and each team was represented by one player. The Pacers had Reggie Miller, but I remembered, you know, I was active on forums at the time, and, and I was active on eBay, and I remember my Ron Artest searches coming up with a couple of these jerseys or maybe a jersey here and here or there from these happy meals. And, you know, I had a chance to buy a few and I passed. It was my understanding that Ron was supposed to be the original toy, but was replaced with Reggie Miller after the brawl. Um, although, like I said, some artists got out and I assumed it was just an international release or something. Fast forward another 18 years to 2023. And I was thinking about this artist mini jersey because I was thinking about what are some things that I don't have that I'd like to pick up. And I could barely find a trace of it online, which, you know, no, not any real information. I looked all over the place. Eventually, this led me to a Happy Meal toy group on Facebook, which is not where I expected to be. And I found a post of yours from 2022, and it was one of these Artest jerseys. And I don't even think, maybe you got one or two replies, but there was really no traction on this post at all. I reached out to you immediately. And you were kind enough to entertain all my questions. You told me the full story uh, in details that have probably never been online. And I said to myself, this is too good not to share, which is why I invited you on today. So uh, I just gave some of the the outside, you know, the perimeter there. I want you to run through the full story as you remember it. Talk about your role with McDonald's and everything that you remember about this mystery toy. Sure. So I worked for a subsidiary McDonald's, not the corporate company, but a subsidiary, and, and their whole thing is managing promotions. And I was on the Happy Meal team. And the point of the Happy Meal team is, is basically you got to make sure every kid, when they show up to McDonald's and they ask for a Happy Meal, the toy is there. I mean, you just don't want disappointed kids. That's bad, right? So uh, my job was to forecast how many uh, Happy Meals would be sold at each restaurant each day for an entire promotion, and then make sure we had enough Happy Meals, that we were sure to have enough Happy Meals in the stores to meet all the demand, but have minimal waste. Because once those Happy Meal promotions end, like they've got these leftover toys, they can sell them once a year. They try and get them out uh, out of the door with just like a hodgepodge mystery box kind of thing at, Happy, at McDonald's Happy Meals. After that, they're incinerated. So hmm. it, it's really about costs. And um, that was my job. And I did it uh, some in the United States, but I mean, mostly Japan, China, and Australia, Asian countries. Um, but what you got to do is forecast... Uh, about a year out, you got to like make a, a forecast of how many toys you're going to sell in the entire market. And then you have to get a factory order in to Vietnam or China. And then it takes about a year for that factory order to to be put in for the toys to show up in an American distribution center. And NBA was one of the promotions is NBA Raven. Ron Artest was one of the hand, small handful of players that was chosen to be a toy. And they had made all the toys. It was on a shipping container in the middle of Pacific. And that's when uh, the brawl happened. Uh, I don't, I just remember that brawl. It was wild, right? Right. Um, I've talked but, a lot about it on this show as a Pacers fan. Is a very uh, painful but entertaining moment for me. It, I was not a Pacers. I was more of a Bulls fan, if anything, but or Hornets. But yeah, I mean, it was something I was watching. Anyway, all of a sudden, we're like, oh my gosh, we've got <laughs> millions of runner test toys on a ship to America and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> and the worst part was they um, sealed up most happy meal toys. You can see through the bag. You know what you're getting. Like the point is, you know what you're getting. So if a kid is like, Hey, I want to, 
um, Snow White figure or whatever, then the manager can go back and see it and give it to them. But they wanted these to be like packs of baseball cards where you couldn't see what was inside. So they had tens of millions of these NBA figurines, and they're wearing these little jerseys for the players. And the ship got to America, and they're like, oh, no, we've got like three months in order to like get these things out. So they had to hire a fleet of temporary workers and they just would like poke these little holes in the, the bags and see if it was a, see if it looked for a Pacers jersey. It was a Pacers jersey, they put it in a pile. If it wasn't, then they put it in another pile that could go out. And then they had to have someone, they had to have a person individually for lots, millions of these things, open up the bag, pull <laughs> off the little Ron Artest jersey, put on a little Reggie Miller jersey, and then seal it back up so it wasn't obvious that the bag had been opened. And then they put it back on the pallets. Well, like once a year, all the people that did my job would go to distribution centers just to kind of help us imagine the how supply chain works and help us with our jobs. And it happened to be that I went when they were doing this. And um, the the distribution manager, distribution center manager explained to us what was going on in here and how it wasn't normal. And I was just like, hey, man, can I can I get one of those? And the guy was like, sure, you can have one. So I, I, when he was looking, I took like two and I, it was wintertime. So I had my jacket in Chicago or whatever. I, I put two in my pocket and then like, he kind of went out of the room and it was like, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Every sudden I'm like the bad kid, like stealing the new thing. <laughs> um, all they, all it was in was like lots of temporary workers. And I just kind of looked like stuffed in my coat. I was like, Oh, I want, I, I, you know, I was a collector. I knew what this kind of thing could be. Cause I mean, it's like the Billy Ripken card or something like that. Like, you know, once those get out, it's, they pull them back in and, and the values having them. So I was like, I know what this is. And I, I walked out. Another guy took a couple too. And then we went on out. Uh, I had all these uh, runner test toys and um, went to the car and I put them in my car. I got, I got away with it, I think. And then I just would always tell my friends about them. I'd be like, hey, man, uh, I've got these things. Some people would want some. And I'd be like, if you're a good enough friend, I might hand you one or something like that. But then decades passed, 15, 18 years, and I just you know, I knew about collecting and how these things worked. And I was like you, I was always about once a year, I'd do a deep search for the Ron Artest Happy Meal toy. And there is nothing out there. I couldn't find mm -hmm. anything. And being a collector, I know I got to go to what the collectors are. So I found a Happy Meal toy collector forum and put a picture of that. And I also had some prototypes uh, of toys too. So, I mean, you know, like before they mass produce it, they make one of each toy and and the analysts like me would look at it and and say if it was a good toy or not if it was a good toy we'd order more if it was a bad toy we'd order less but they had this little tag that said prototype or whatever and i was just like i don't know what these things are worth and even cares about them so i started going to those happy meal groups and just posting and and like you said i think i got a couple of those little shocked faces emojis and that's that's all <laughs> anyone did so i was like i guess just no one cares or no one knows or whatever so i i just went back i just put them back away and then you know about a year and a half later you came and found me and i was very, very pleased to have someone who cares about it, who's passionate about it, um, definitely belongs in their hands rather than sitting in my closet kind of thing. So I was glad to uh, learn more about it, uh, although we're still learning, I think, about these and and find people who care about them. Yeah, and I found someone on Reddit during my search that they had, you know, hey, here's the complete set. And I, I reached out to them. I'm like, you know, hey, do you know where Ron Artest is? And he's like, there is no Ron Artest. And I was just kind of quiet at that point. I'm like, okay. You know, <laughs> you know, congrats on completing the set. And I asked him if he had any extra Reggie Millers. He did not. And, you know, we went on our way. Now, speaking of Reggie Miller, if everything functioned like it was supposed to, which we know that's not always the case, there should be an equal number of Reggie Miller jerseys as every other player. If, if I, you know, I'm, I'm understanding this correctly, but those are really hard to find. Like 
There's not any of those on eBay. I found some on sold listings. And I, I know I sent you this picture last night. I bought four unopened toy number sixes on eBay, just like in the just like hoping I could pull one. Well, I got three out of the four were Reggie Miller. So I don't know. And I bought three of them from the same seller. So I'm thinking maybe they just ended up in one batch. I don't know. Uh, yeah. So typically when we shipped them out, uh, you know, there might be six to eight toys, number of weeks times two. So six, usually six or eight versions of the toys mm -hmm. and they go out two at a time. So like if they um, had a box of the toys, there'd probably just be two different figurines in that box. Uh, okay. They want to keep it coming back to McDonald's. So, you know, if you wanted to get the whole set, you had to come a couple times in each of the weeks the Happy Meal promotion was going. So it's not really random uh, for those Happy Meal toys. Probably it was uh, whatever case they pulled those from. It was a case of just, uh, I think, Carmelo Anthony was the other one. That's probably just yeah. Carmelo Anthony and, and Reggie Miller in that box and nothing else. Yeah. Well, I, and I was thinking like, I'm wondering if, you know, they started switching these out and and I don't, you know, I don't know the numbers and, and we don't have to disclose all that. But it's like at some point, if I'm a temporary worker doing this, I'm just like, man, forget this. Like, <laughs> I'm tired of, of switching these jerseys out because it's not an easy switch. It's like this awkward looking plastic figure and the jersey is, you know, pretty tight over. I mean, you got to kind of move some things around. So uh, I can only imagine how much fun that would have been. But uh, thankfully, like you said, you know, it, you got an art test in my hands and, and I'm very appreciative of that. Now, hearing all, all of this behind the scenes stuff makes it more special. There were also some funny stories in addition to the Ron Artest figure itself. I think one of them involved the layup, Luke. Can you tell me a little bit about that or if there's any other strange situations involving these toys? Yeah, so um, part of our unit, uh, I didn't do this, but we had the, the call center. People would call up McDonald's and complain about packaging or whatever. And we would get the reports and um, there's always parents that would be somehow bothered by the toys. And it was, those are the things that we share around the office because most of the time it was funny. And sometimes you're like, oh yeah, they have a point. And this one, maybe they had a point. I'm not sure. But so it's a little plastic figure and the jersey is huge. It's more like a nightshirt or a dress or something like that. And the layup guy, he's got his knee out. Um, he was doing the classic layup pose, one foot by the ground, his knee up going towards the basket. But to position the knee and the shirt the parent, a few parents called and they're like, man, um, that looks like he's uh, pretty excited down there. I'm not, I'm not sure this is appropriate for my kid to be playing with. And then we looked at it and we're like, oh yeah, actually they have a point about that. Well, and you probably didn't want to go through another, so ever, you know, many millions of toys and try and get rid of the rest of those. So the parents yeah. will just have to deal with that. Well, Trey, I know you're at work and I promised you this would be a, you know, a quick conversation. So I do want to respect that, but I have to ask you one more question. Now that you have been in the working world for years now, and I'm going to assume you got a little more money to play with than you did when you were in grad school or whatever, have you ever considered, and I know you're still toting these cards around, have you ever considered a return to the hobby? Uh, I Absolutely. You know, I read somewhere that successful people make life goals or whatever. So when I was about 22, I made a list of life goals. And one uh, of those goals was to own every base tops card okay. in baseball. I would love to do that. And uh, it's not possible to look at something like Mickey Mantle, 1952. But that's a regret I got, man. I'll tell you what. I could have acquired a 1952 Mickey Mantle rookie card that was like a grade one or something. It was like probably right. had a hole in it or something like that. But I remember I had all my – I just had like a birthday or something. I had more money than I usually had as like a 12-year-old. Right. And one of the local stores had one I could buy. If I took like everything I had, it would have been a few – several hundred dollars. But I mean it was like if I really reached, I could have gotten – like this oh, terrible man. 1952 Mickey Mantle card. My mom nicks it. She's like, nope, nope, can't do that. And that oh, mom. is a thing I talk to her about all the time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because even the the crumpled copies are like 
I, you know, I don't know the number, but it's pretty ridiculous right now because yep. the people got priced out of the, you know, the really nice ones. And that in turn brought up the price of the not so nice ones. So maybe someday, and, and there's going to be a couple others as well. Like actually Mike Trout's rookie is, is pretty crazy, but I, you know, that could fall if he continues to, you know, not go to the postseason or whatever. I don't know. I don't want to forecast that, but uh, definitely something to think about building those sets. That sounds like a lot of fun. If you do decide to come back and, and do that, you know where to reach me. I'd be happy to help you as much as I can. I can't promise I know everything, but um, before I let you go, do you have any parting thoughts or anything you'd like to share with the listeners at home or anything you want to plug? Just, I love the hobby still. My son's actually starting to collect cards. He's six and it is awesome to get back into it a little bit. Um, he likes football cards. So I'm always, I'm going to tell him who the good players are. So it's, I'm still getting those packs and it is starting to make me want to go buy some of my own now all of a sudden. Um, but the only thing I got to plug is NC State basketball. I'll just tell you, if you're any uh, five-star recruits out there listening to this podcast and you're thinking, I need a place to go, NC State that's the place to go. All right. So yeah, check with Indiana first. If Indiana doesn't want you, <laughs> NC State would be happy to have you. Trey, thanks again. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, there you have it. That's probably not the conversation you expected to hear today, but I hope you enjoyed it because I sure did. Those are questions I've wondered about for a long time now, and I probably stumbled across the only person or one of a handful of people that would even know the answer to that. So that was a real treat for me. If you're listening to this on release day or the next couple days that follow that, well, I'll be in basketball card heaven at the National. So there will be plenty of content recapping that after the fact. Be on the watch for that. You can look out for that on my Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. 